Well, I can understand if you're thinking that's not the best possible passage for Mother's Day. Um, I'm aware that Mother's Day is an important day in the church. Uh, typically, it's actually the the uh, day where we have the greatest number of attendees in church after Christmas and Easter. And the reason is obvious, because people are trying to uh, do something special for mom or for grandma. They're going to church with her, even if they don't regularly go to church on Mother's or other Sundays. But... Um, uh, these aren't these aren't typical circumstances. Normally, you would go out for uh, brunch or something like that. There might be flowers. And the good news about the coronavirus is that you don't have to do any of those things. That you don't have to go out for lunch afterwards. The bad news is, of course, I'm lying. You have to go out for for Mother's Day, and so you just have to figure out how are we going to do that, given the fact that everybody's closed. So I, I leave that part of the problem to you. Um, but do something nice for your mom because she's your mom. All right, I seem to have lost my place. Now, where, where was I headed with this? Okay, so why do we have this weird passage with this brutal passage? It's not just weird. It's it's violent and brutal. Why do that? And and particularly, is it worth doing it on Mother's Day? Well, I think it is worth it. Um, but I am aware it is it is an ugly passage. And we may be thinking, well, you know, I don't want to hear about mob violence. And let me tell you, it's actually worse than mob violence. We can understand a mob because a mob is just is just people whose passions have kind of uh, run away with them. And so we, we get that and we understand sometimes that happens. It's not a good thing, but, but we understand it. But this is not mob violence. This is a miscarriage of justice because the people doing the, doing the murder in this story are actually the highest court in the, the land at that time. They were the, the ruling council. And it is, it is almost inconceivable for us to imagine our Supreme Court doing something like this. Imagine uh, some some uh, hearing before the Supreme Court that got so frustrating to the justices that they they uh, ran the 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 defendant or who I guess the the the, the appellant um, uh, out into the street and they started um, they started throwing rocks at him. It's hard for us to imagine that. You know, Chief Justice John Roberts gives his cloak to. To somebody hold this while I start throwing rocks or, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, she's the notorious RBG, but she's not that notorious. It's, it's hard for us to imagine anything that would cause, uh, judges to go so over the, over the, the edge. Um, so it's worse than simple mob violence. It's actually a gross miscarriage of justice. And so, so why, why do we have trouble with it? First of all, it is hard for us to imagine uh, our justice is doing something like that. The other reason is because most of us don't have much experience of of violence or uh, injustice. We might have some complaints. We might feel like you know that person was mean to me, or or that that wasn't fair what they did to me. But we don't have the sense of gross miscarriage of justice. Now, that's not always the case, and it's certainly not the 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 case um, down through the years and in other places. Just earlier this year, we talked about. Uh, the way that Christians are facing persecution in Nigeria. And we know that that's something that still happens in other places around the world. We know it's not limited to Christians. Uh, many of you are familiar with the, the stories coming out of the Uyghur regions of China, how the, the Muslim Uyghur population is being treated by the, the Chinese government there. So we know persecution uh, is not something that's limited to Christianity, but it is a part of Christianity. It goes uh, all the way back. In fact, it goes back to this story we read today. Um, and uh, the story of Stephen is the story of the very first martyr. As far as we know, he may be the first person actually to, the first Christian to die after Jesus was, de- Jesus' own death and resurrection. But he's certainly the first one to die at the hands of, 
of an anti-Christian um, uh, uh, mob. So um, it is a very ugly thing. It's brutal, it's violent, it's all the things we don't like. And at the same time, it is a part of our Christian heritage. It's something we see in so much Christian art. Um, countless artists have have tried to capture this moment um, in in paintings or in sculpture or in uh, tapestries or even in stained glass. So it is it is something that is both repellent and attractive. It's something where we know that there's there's something in here for us to to learn, and at the same time, uh, it is something that makes us want to avert our eyes. So, so uh, today we're going to actually uh, lean into this story. We're going to actually figure out what it is that this story has to communicate to us. So uh, we are reading from um, the end of chapter 7. The story actually begins in the middle of chapter 6, and uh, what's what's been going on there is that uh, Stephen was, was hauled before this Supreme Court uh, by people who were accusing him of blasphemy. So uh, we don't have a charge of blasphemy anymore, but they did back then, and it was a very serious, it was a capital crime. And so um, he begins, uh, he, he listens to, or every, we all, we, we as the readers, we listen to the complaints, and then at the beginning of chapter 7, the high priest asks, Peter, uh, asks uh, Stephen the question, are these things true? And so the rest of chapter 7, except the part we read, is Stephen's defense. He says, no, I, I've always been uh, uh, observant of our, of our uh, traditions. Um, I believe in the God that, that we all grew up believing in. And um, he continues to make his defense. And as he does, he begins to change kind of the direction of where he's, where he's headed with it. And uh, over the course of his defense, we realize it's not so much a defense anymore as a counter accusation. He's saying, look, I am obedient to God. It is you who are disobedient. It is you who have lost sight of what it is God is doing. And you're missing the point here. And um, he ends up by saying that they are stiff necked and that they are like their ancestors who murdered the prophets. And that's where we pick things up in uh, uh, verse uh, 54. And we can, um, we can understand, given that, that background, why they are enraged. Nobody wants to hear somebody say, you're, you're the one who's wrong. When, when we think we're right, and then suddenly they say, no, actually, you're, you're wrong. Nobody likes hearing that. But particularly to say, you're in line with the worst mistakes that we remember in our tradition. The, the worst mistakes we can remember all the way through history. You are just like that. No one wants to hear that. So we understand why they are enraged, and they grind their teeth at Stephen. But before they can deliver a verdict, um, Stephen has this vision. It says, it says, Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, stares into heaven and saw God's majesty and Jesus standing at God's right side. So he, he looks up at the heavens and he sees this and he calls out. He says, it says, uh, he exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display and the human one standing at God's right side. So he's referring to the prophecy of, of Daniel from hundreds of years before. Daniel had said, Daniel had had this vision of the Ancient of Days, the, 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 the name for, or one of many names for God. And, uh, the one who came to him was like a, like a son of man, like a human one who came to him. And he says, I'm seeing right now what it was that, that Daniel saw. I actually have a peek into the heavenly throne room. And instead of saying, wow, Daniel, really? 
tell us more. And, and instead of looking up and saying, we want to see it too, instead, they don't even listen. They actually cover their ears. Far from looking up and seeing what it is he says, he sees, and we don't know if they would have seen it, but far from looking up, far from even listening to him, they cover their ears. They don't want any part of this. So what do they do then? They charge at him and throw him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, it sounds like that that was a, a, a suddenly fit of passion, that they are so angry, so enraged, that they can't contain themselves, and they just begin uh, stoning him right then. But it says that they threw him out of the city. And remember, the Supreme Court is not located at the edge of town. The Supreme Court is not right next to the city limits. The Supreme Court is in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. And for him to be thrown out of town, they had to hustle him off to the edge of town. And that was deliberate. That was the way the the laws for blasphemy worked, that the person could not be executed. It was a capital offense, as I mentioned, but the person could not be executed in town. He had to be executed outside of town. And the reason for that is to give people time to reconsider, to give people time to calm down, for passions to cool, for people to kind of get control of their emotions and say, is this really the right thing to do? And, uh, you know, I know the whole idea of a blasphemy law sounds very archaic to us, maybe even primitive or or barbaric. Um, and it's not my job to defend the, the Hebrew Scriptures and the, the Old Testament law. It's something that Jesus fulfilled, and we are not under the law. So it's not for me to defend it. But I will point out that that's a good feature of the law. It gave people time to reconsider. Is this really something we want to do? In fact, it, it kind of forced them to reconsider in a couple of other ways because everybody who was party to the case had to participate in stoning the blasphemer. So whether it was the judge or the bailiff, um, you know, the, the members of the jury, every single person had to participate in carrying out the sentence. And in fact, the witnesses had to go first. So when it, when we read about the witnesses um, that put their coats in the in the care of a young man named Saul, that's the people who brought the charge of blasphemy against him. So this was these were part of the the safeguards that were built into the blasphemy law to make sure that people were not accused unrightly of blasphemy. And in fact, we only read of a couple of cases in the scriptures where people were actually charged with blasphemy. So. So there were some protections, but again, it's not for us to defend it because Jesus actually fulfilled the law. And more than that, he gave us an extra rule. He said, it's not enough simply to be a witness to the crime. He said, he said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. So in that sense, it's really not something we need to concern ourselves with. We're not going to be prosecuting anybody for blasphemy. But it's something that they did then. They they were prosecuting and now carrying out a sentence against Stephen for blasphemy. So they begin to throw stones at him. And the witnesses, the people who go first, they place their coats in the care of a young man named Saul. And as they battered him with stones, Stephen prayed. Stephen prayed two prayers. And the first one is, Lord Jesus, accept my life. And the second is, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Now, the first one, we have every reason to believe from the rest of the New Testament witness that 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 prayer was granted, that Stephen was received into the arms of his Savior, that he received the crown of life that is given to those who endure persecution. In fact, Stephen's name um, 
uh, is the word for that crown of life. The 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 word crown. There, there's two kinds of crowns. There's the the one with the pointy edges that that kings wear. You know the the golden thing with the jaggedy edge. That's that's one kind of crown. But the kind of crown that's being referred to here is a is a wreath of laurel leaves, and it's given to somebody who who wins a contest, somebody who is who is the victor in a in a in a sporting event or something like that. And we read in scripture that that people who endure persecution receive not just any old crown like that, but they receive a crown of life. So we have every reason to believe from the rest of the New Testament scriptures uh, 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 witness that Stephen was was granted that prayer that when he said Jesus received my life, he not only uh, uh, his life not only went to Jesus, but Jesus gave him that that accolade of "Well done, thou good and faithful servant." So we don't know, but we can reason from the rest of Scripture that that first prayer was granted. But we know the second prayer was granted. The reason we know it was granted is because it tells us about a man named Saul. One of the people who was involved in this murder was a man named Saul, and we don't know about the rest of the people, but we do know about one of them, and Saul is in full agreement with Stephen's murder, we read. And then chapter 8, we take it from there, and Saul begins persecuting all kinds of people. He says, killing Stephen isn't enough. We need to really get to the bottom of this thing. And so he begins killing, uh, uh, persecuting all of the, um, all of the, the Jesus followers that he can find. And when they, when they flee Jerusalem to, to get away from him, he gets permission to go chase them down in whatever cities they, they go to. And it is while he is on his way to Damascus, he is on the road to Damascus that he has an encounter with Jesus himself. He encounters the risen Lord Jesus and Jesus saves his life and turns him around. So Stephen's prayer is granted because he asked for forgiveness and Jesus tells Saul that that um, you will, um, you must uh, learn how much you must suffer for, for his name. So, so Paul is forgiven, and uh, Saul is forgiven, and given the new name of Paul. And um, the rest of the book of Acts is largely concerned with with his story. So that is that is the the. The, the reading we've had, and now the question for us is, what are we supposed to do with it? So, so it's interesting to know, but how does it actually apply to our lives? Well, uh, my guess is that you're not facing persecution. We, we are fortunate that we live in a time and a place where we don't have to worry about actual persecution. But we do face hardships. Jesus told us there would be hardships. He, he said flatly that, that there would be storms in our life, that, that there would be troubles in our life. So even if we don't face persecution, we know that there will be hardship. And so I think the first thing it teaches us, when when we are facing hardship, when when we're tempted to say, I'm like Stephen here, I'm being a martyr for my faith or or for, for just trying to be a good Christian uh, when people are being mean to me or whatever, when I'm accused unjustly of something, even if it's not related to our faith, if we're trying to live out our faith, we may feel like we're, we're being put upon. And so the first lesson is is to look at ourselves to make sure that that's true. Because there's no guarantee that we are Stephen in this picture. We could be the counsel, you know, and, and we need to actually ask ourselves, to what extent am I really the innocent victim here? And to what extent am I actually the oppressor? And, you know, we don't like those terms, but it's a fair question to ask. There's nothing, there's nothing that says you will always be the, the innocent victim. There's nothing that says you will always be Stephen. Sometimes you may be counsel, and sometimes you may be partly 
one and partly the other. So the first thing to do is look at yourself and figure out which one am I? To what extent am I responsible for this hardship? And to what extent is it somebody else's fault? That's the first question we can ask. The second thing is we remember that, that in a, in a hardship, that it doesn't mean, the fact that there is hardship, if, if we are suffering, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten us. It doesn't mean that God is powerless, is, that God uh, doesn't care about us. Um, in fact, sometimes it is God who is causing the pain. Um, we, we, we know that sometimes God needs to kind of get our attention. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And sometimes we are deaf, that God is trying to get our attention. God is trying to call us to a different path than we're on. And the only lesson we, the only way we will actually listen to God is if we have pain in our life. So sometimes it is actually God who is, who is permitting that pain to happen precisely because he wants us to, to, to take a different turning. Other times the reason is not obvious. Sometimes we have no idea why we're suffering, that, that, or, or why God would let, we may know the reason we're suffering, but we may not know why God would allow it. You know, if I am truly innocent here, why is God allowing this pain? And we, we may never know the answer to that question, not in this lifetime. But maybe we will. So I think the second lesson is to do what Stephen did. Stephen looked up. When he was facing this this unjust persecution, he looked up into the heaven and he saw this vision. And maybe you will too. Jesus told some of his disciples that they would they would see the heavens parted. And maybe maybe you might be given the same vision that, that Stephen was given. But even if you aren't, maybe you will get a clearer picture of what it is that Jesus is doing. Maybe you can just ask, why is this happening? Why is this bad thing happening to me? So look up, because you may get some kind of a vision of what it is that God is doing. So look up. And lastly, we can look around. It's not an accident. The way Luke tells this story, he brings in this character named Saul. Now we know Saul from later on in the book of Acts when he gets this new name of Paul. But he is right here at the beginning. He is right there when the first martyrdom occurs. And so we don't expect Stephen to look around and say, oh, well, there's there's Saul. Saul. But we can look around as the readers. We can say, hey, wait a minute. The picture is bigger than just these people and Stephen. There's somebody else in the picture. And what is the significance of Saul being in this picture? The the answer is that sometimes the the solution to the problem, sometimes the 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 reason God is allowing some bad thing to happen is right there with us. We can we can actually see it if we just look around. And it may be somebody, it may be somebody. And if it is somebody, it may be the last person we would expect it to be. Um Stephen, the reason he's called before the council in the first place is because he was out arguing his opponents. He was saying, look, I believe all the things in, in the, the, the scriptures, but I have a new understanding of what they mean in light of what, what has happened with Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So he was arguing with people and they're saying, no, it doesn't mean that. And he was saying, yes, it does, because look, see how this all fits together. And he was winning the arguments because Stephen was a good arguer and that's why he was martyred. But if Stephen was a good arguer, Paul was a fabulous arguer. Paul spent the next 30 years arguing from one side of the Mediterranean to the other. We know, we know through the rest of the book of Acts that he goes up the, the Mediterranean coast, up through Syria and across into Asia Minor. And from there he goes into Greece 
And uh, he ends the, the book of Acts ends with him in Rome. And according to some traditions, he went as far as Spain. He certainly expressed a desire in some of his letters to go to Spain. And Paul is still arguing today. Paul is a great arguer, and he's arguing with people even today through the, the New Testament. Paul wrote a quarter of the New Testament. So, so if, if Stephen is martyred because he is a good arguer, it really went back on the people who killed him because they got a much better arguer in, in Paul. So sometimes we just need to look around. We need to reframe the situation. We need to say somewhere in my vicinity, perhaps, is the, the solution to this problem. That, that it's true, I can't go any further, but maybe with somebody's help, um, the, the thing I'm trying to do can, can go forward. So we need to look around. We need to look up. And sometimes, yes, we do need to look at ourselves to see if, if or, or rather what part of the problem really belongs to us. It's an ugly passage, but there's so much to learn from it. There's a reason for all the artwork that, that exists to show this picture, this picture of a man who is, who is cruelly brutalized and, and murdered, but who teaches us so much that we can look at ourselves, we can look up, and we can look around. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the lesson of Stephen, the, the first martyr, um, who reminds us that you do not promise us an easy life, but you do promise us a better one. Lord, when hardships come to us, help us to remember to look first at ourselves, second at you, and third to look around to see who who you have put into that situation that maybe needs to see it, maybe needs to be inspired by it, maybe needs to be revolted by it. Help us to Look at ourselves, look up, and look around. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.